Hello, and welcome to episode two of JobsCast. I mentioned last week that the format of the show is to alternate between an interview with a work theorist and a work practitioner, with the idea being that these perspectives purvey equally valuable information, and in juxtaposing them over the course of a year, we might gain some insight into where and when and how these respective views seem to converge on the same understanding of reality, and where and when and how they tend to see things differently. I think there's an important relationship between understanding and action. The world has no shortage of problems these days, and I think we can only come up with durable solutions and act to realize them to the extent that we can first come to a shared vision of what exactly is going on. Last week, I neglected to mention a few basic details you might like to know, including who I am. I didn't even say my name. Uh, my name is Pat Bubble. You can email me with any comments or questions at pat.bubul at gmail.com. You can also find me under the same name on Twitter. I am a Boston-based human. Um, you're not listening to AI right now, as far as I know. I'll share more about my own relationship to work in time, but it will suffice to say for now that I work in education, and among the other reasons I mentioned last week, I started this project because I'm a highly curious and conversational guy. So today's episode delves into the incredibly hot-button occupational space of policing with Officer Frank Williams. Frank and I met about five years ago when I was doing a community-building project slash social experiment called 1000 Till 30, which you can check out on Instagram if you'd like. The account name is 1000TIL30. 1,000 till 30 was basically about having a meaningful interaction with a different person every day for 1,000 days in a row. So the day I met Frank, I was walking down Broadway in South Boston, and I saw him standing in front of the South Boston Police Precinct along with a colleague of his, and I walked up to them, told them what I was doing, and they were really nice about it, and we chatted for a bit and took a picture. Frank gave me his card, and I thought about him a month or so ago in relation to JobsCast, so I sent him an email, and he said he was game for it, so here we are. I talked with Frank, who is an African-American man and has been on the Boston Police Force for 32 years, about quite a number of issues that I hope you'll enjoy hearing about. Those include why Frank decided to become a police officer, what his job looked like as COVID-19 crashed over the eastern seaboard of the U.S., Frank's view on why the arrest of George Floyd went so horribly wrong. Then we turn to several issues specific to Boston, such as why Frank believes the BPD is among the best in the nation and what it was like for him growing up in the south end of Boston in the 70s and 80s. And finally, in the last third or so of our conversation, we turn to larger themes like shifts in neighborhood parenting, the practical importance of organizational diversity, how race relations have changed over time, whether it makes more sense these days to think of the state of the world in hopeful or hopeless terms or both or neither, leveraging community relations to diffuse tense situations, the problem of desiring instant self-gratification, the relationship of fear to effective policing, and the importance of integrity. We also discuss the amazing work Frank has done in the community with the organization Volley Against Violence. I'd like to just note that in re-listening to my conversation with Frank, there was definitely a part of me that wished I had pushed him to explain some of his views further. But then I started thinking about the nature of discussion and how it can take very different forms, like a debate or a conversation. I think the world has room enough for both kinds of exchanges, but my feeling is debates rarely change people's minds and actually tend to have the opposite effect of reinforcing pre-existing beliefs. So with conversation that is decidedly non-combative, non-argumentative, not a debate, the purpose is more achievable, and that purpose is to increase understanding. I don't think everyone deserves a platform from which they could be understood, 
There are people in the world who have egregiously malevolent views, and there are plenty of folks out there now who would say all police officers fall into that category. Obviously, I don't share that view. Otherwise, I wouldn't have taken the time to talk with Frank, but I can understand where that perspective is coming from, especially these days. And for those of you who haven't seen it yet, I strongly recommend Googling Confessions of a Former Bastard Cop. That will take you to an essay published on Medium.com by a former California-based police officer who cogently makes the case for extreme police reform based on a litany of abuses he witnessed and took part in. I encourage you to read that as well as consider Frank's perspective. They are very different from each other and both illuminating. Finally, before presenting this week's conversation, I thought I'd share some relevant financial and crime statistics for context. Frank mentioned that Boston police officers are paid well. If you try to Google this, you find a broad span of salaries ranging from $30,000 to $130,000. A Boston Herald article from February 2019 states that the median salary for Boston police officers is $89,000, and Glassdoor.com says the average Boston police salary is $92,000. I also found a Boston.com article. Boston.com is the online edition of the Boston Globe, for those of you not from Boston. Uh, I found an article there from back in 2010 with the title, Police Pay Can Exceed 250 k So it seems that Boston police officers are doing well financially. Denver and Washington, D.C. are comparably sized cities. Glassdoor says the average police salary in Denver is 86 k and in D.C., 75 k The mayor of Boston, Marty Walsh, okay, earns a salary of $199,000 a year which is right around what the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, earns and is $28,000 higher than the salary of Denver's mayor, Michael Hancock. Now, this one I found especially interesting. Denver's police commissioner, Paul Pazin, earns $203,000 per year. Peter Newsom, D.C.'s police commissioner, earns $273,000 a year. And Boston's police commissioner, William G. Gross, earns a whopping $285,000 a year. In each of these cities, the police commissioner makes more than the mayor, and in Boston, that gap is $85,000. And by the way, I learned in doing this research that the title police commissioner is used by large metropolitans, and chief of police tends to be used by smaller and medium-sized cities, but they mean the same thing. Chief or commissioner, they're the heads of their police organizations, and they're typically appointed by a mayor, city council, or commission. I think these financial numbers are important to know. If you're unhappy with them, you can say something to your representatives. And if you feel safe and good about the state of affairs in your city or town, you should let your elected officials know about that too. Now, I think the relationship between pay and performance, which in this case is uh, all about crime reduction, is a very complex one, but generally one would expect them to have a positive correlation. I was able to find in a recent article from the Coloradoan, which is the daily newspaper site in Fort Collins, that lists, uh, the article lists all 50 U.S. states, ranking them in order of most violent crime per capita. According to the report, Massachusetts is the 26th most, most dangerous state, Colorado is the 20th most dangerous state, and since this was for states, D.C. wasn't listed, but Virginia is relatively safe. It's the 47th most dangerous state. And Maryland, likely skewed by Baltimore, is less safe. It's the 11th most dangerous state. And you might be wondering about the top and bottom here. And again, remember, this is a ranking of violent crimes per capita. According to the Colorado, and Maine is the safest state with a violent crime rate of 112.1 per 100,000 people. And Alaska is the most dangerous state with a violent crime rate of 885 per 100,000 people. So 
there are some numbers for you. Uh, now it's time for stories. Without further preamble, here's today's conversation with the inimitable Frank Williams. Frank, thanks so much for being a part of JobsCast. Thank you so much for having me. So Frank, why why did you decide to get into law enforcement? Oh gosh, we get asked that question all the time. Uh, you know, the standard answer is I wanted to help people. But um, you know, for me, it was a little deeper than that. We had a program in the South End where I grew up back in the 60s uh, called My Friend the Policeman. And my mother was a big advocate of that program. And what this program did was it took kids who weren't in trouble, but juveniles to the police station. They would meet police officers. They would like sit down and have lunch with them sometimes. Um, little field trips. I think it was the actual origin of community policing. And in my time doing that, I guess my subconscious kicked in at a later time and said, you know, this is what you should do. And I left the nightclub business to, you know, pursue a career in law enforcement. So you had had a career before you entered law enforcement. Oh, yeah. Nightclubs. What were you doing there? Uh, me and a friend of mine, we owned a nightclub. We promoted um, certain events, um, did some touring with certain artists. Oh, that's so cool. What? Uh, uh, where was the nightclub based? It was in Mass Ave. It was called the Gallery. The Cotton Oh, Club nice. Oh, great. Right there on Mass Ave by Newmarket Square. It had a jazz bar downstairs and a discotheque upstairs and a restaurant in the back. It sounds fun. I wish it was uh, still open. <laughs> you, you, you weren't old enough to be there. Right. <laughs> it was way before your time, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, Frank, coming from your own experience, you know, your, your own selfhood, how do you make sense of what's going on in the world right now? I mean, obviously, there's so many angles we could take this from. We could start with the with the COVID-19 pandemic. And then, of course, there seems to be a relationship between that and the protests that have been going on and have been triggered most recently by the killing of George Floyd. How, how are you thinking about this this moment we're in in history now? Well, you know, I don't think we've ever there, there has been a time similar to this, but not in terms of the George Floyd thing. Uh, that's a really complex topic. So first, let's talk about COVID and then we'll move on. One of the things I do is I do um, a program in Cape Verde Islands, which is off the coast of Africa. I go there every year. I spend two weeks there. I bring like 100 tennis rackets. I teach kids tennis for free. Um, I've, I've established a relationship with the police department there. And it's very similar to the program we do here called Volley Against Violence and the Boston Police Tennis Program, which operate a sportsman's tennis and enrichment center on, on Fridays and Sundays. So this program I, kinda, I took on the road. I connected with some police officers down there. And we went down there and we did tennis and we had a great time and, you know, created a better relationship between the kids that, that were there playing tennis and the kids that weren't playing tennis and the police department. Because kids really don't want to be around police officers. But we created this relationship with the cops were on the courts, didn't play well, but the kids could play well, so they had advantage. But it established uh, some new friendships and relationships that, that my third year going, which I just came back from, it was those relationships were still there. Those kids were bigger and they were happy to see me. And it was just really appreciated. I got back just in time to meet COVID. Wow. If I, if I would have stayed one more week, I wouldn't have made it back. I have friends that were stuck there for three months. Oh, wow. One of, one of my best buddies from Rhode Island who was part of this program with me, 
he got out. He it took him five days to get a flight out, out of Portugal to come back to wow. the United States. So we got back just in time, and then it hit, and it hit, and it hit. And you know, with my job, you know, as a police officer here, the precautions that we had to take, um, the places we had to go into, places where um, addresses were flagged for COVID, we had to um, to the darn PPE gear. Um, they gave us additional stuff. I mean, just it was something that in, in my world of policing I had never seen before. Wow. It was almost like you had to prepare for a leper colony. Yeah, that's that's remarkable. Wow, what a way to describe it. Well, you know, it's it's just it, it, it it's not comfortable because no. you're going in, in, in even the places that are flagged, they tell you many places people where there are people that have COVID and they're not telling anybody. Right. We had over over a hundred police officers, over 150 police officers in our job test positive, and then they had to be quarantined for 14 days, which made a tremendous strain on the police department because. We didn't have the manpower to be out there. Guys are working doubles and triples, you know, just, just because it's the right thing to do. We have a city we have to protect. We're, this, right. we're responsible for the city. So we had to be there more than we want, more than we wanted to be, but we needed to be while our other brothers and sisters healed. Uh, COVID really is still taking a toll on us. I mean, the numbers they have, I mean, how accurate are they? Who knows? You know, you, we've got the whole political situation with the doctor saying one thing and the president saying another. But right. we're not going to talk politics. We'll talk that over a drink. Anything goes here, Frank. Feel free to take it where you want. <laughs> you know, we, we have a, a president who's saying that, uh, you know, this isn't right. The, the, the doctors don't know what they're talking about. Everything's fine. No, everything is not fine. It is not fine. I agree it's with nowhere, you. It's nowhere near fine. So... You know, this is going to be a really interesting election, and I'm sure I hope something different comes out of it. Um, yeah, I, I share that feeling. I, I was talking to someone earlier, and, you know, the, the death toll now in the United States is 120,000, and that number is fluid at the moment. We're, we're not so sure how accurate it is, but let's assume that it's roughly accurate. The high end of, of the death toll in an average year of the flu season is 60,000. So now it's double uh, a bad flu season. And what I'm really shocked by, Frank, is it seems that there are dueling interpretations of that number. On the one hand, you have people who seem to be saying, well, yeah, 120,000 people have died, not to mention all the people who have permanent damage done to their body. It's a tragedy. It's sad. But and then there's that big but, uh, you know, I want to live my life. I have freedom. I don't want to wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. There's there's a conspiracy a uh, aspect to it. And then you have people who have uh, the other interpretation, which this tends to be my interpretation, which is that this is uh, this is not only a tragedy, but it's an ongoing danger, uh, and we need to do absolutely everything possible to try to curb it. I, I, it's it's amazing to me that there there would be two different interpretations of this of this huge number, 120,000 people who've who've died, and and this seems to be maybe the most recent example of just how divided uh, America tends to be. I'm curious, Frank, since you you're a police officer and I know based on how we met and from the conversations we've had so far that uh, being a sort of community ambassador, someone who's who's meeting people uh, is, is important to you. Do, do you have a sense from your work on the ground, talking to people, being in the community that America is as divided as we think it is based on the news? In other words, we know that the political divisions are very intense, but 
I wonder about people. I wonder, and obviously I know you're in Boston where there might be one sort of dominant political skew, but what's your feeling on how divided uh, individual people actually are compared to how divided the political parties seem to be? Are we talking about in, in terms of um, knowledge about COVID? Or are we talking about race relations? Let's talk about both. Okay. I mean, I think in terms of COVID, I think the the information being discussed. Matter of fact, this morning when I got in the car, I'm listening to NPR as I usually do, and they were talking about a woman in Ohio who was recently fired because she was in charge of providing data for COVID, and she was providing the accurate data. And wow, and she was, was fired. A, there was another agency that was saying to her, "You here, this is this is the script we want you to follow." And she was like, but that's not accurate. Right, like, no, right. we have to follow this. That's it. So they eventually fired her and they brought somebody new in that followed the script. And, you know, she held, held on to her information and passed it on. It's almost like you wonder if the government is saying, you know, we don't we don't want the truth out. It's almost like X-Files. Oh, are you alive? Yeah. Oh, sure. I, I I remember being scared to death when hearing the music come on when my parents watched it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So X-Files was a great show. You know, and the thing is, the truth is out there. We just don't know it. So you have one one group of people that are just like, oh, the government's giving us all the information. Let's do exactly what they say. And you have another group of people that are just like, oh, no, we're being lied to. But who has the answer? I don't. Right. Right. You know, so that's just my take on the whole whole COVID thing. Do I think it's dangerous? I, you know, I've, I've gone to calls and I see, you know, in my line of work, a lot of older people passing, mm. you know, and, you know, I don't think that this COVID thing hit in March. I think it was here earlier. I agree. And people were dying from it, maybe even a, a year or more earlier. I know that supposedly it was spoken about um, during the Obama presidency, but and there were things that were supposed to take action taken, but it wasn't. Right. Um, but like I said, this is all information. We don't know where what's real and what isn't. But I think we were ill prepared. I think it, it came and we and it caught us with our pants down. And bang, here we are. Um, you know, the the economy's taking it, taking a huge hit. But there are certain organizations that are making a ton of money right now. That's a true ton too. Of money. That's right. Oh gosh, you know, commercial real estate just took a big hit, but residential real estate is still growing. You right. know, for a long time, real estate in the suburbs was diminishing, was going down, and people were moving into the city because they didn't want to drive, they want to be closer, they want to be the, the restaurant. Now, all of a sudden, um, people are looking, they're flocking to the Vineyard, the Catskills, the Hamptons, the Berkshires, and Nantucket. Right. The prices, the price, I was, I was shopping for us in the Vineyard two years ago, and the prices were what they were. Now they're up 10%. Wow. People significant increase yeah, yeah they want to get away and they feel these places are safe sure i'm sure there's COVID there also but it's different it's you know you're more spread out you you don't have direct access to the people in the inner city uh are close right, close right. quarters but i don't even know if that's a solution so that's my thoughts on covert now my thoughts on race relations uh, I've got two different aspects of it. One, me being a, a black African-American male, and the other, me being a police officer of color working in the city of Boston. Right. I look at, I look at what one police officer does that creates a pandemonium in the entire world. The entire world. Now, my mm. personal thoughts on that is 
I think that was his signature pose. I think mm. he's done it before. Interesting. He, he's done it, and if they looked hard enough, they'd find pictures. And he just got away with it for the longest time because he looked too comfortable in that position. Right. It was almost like he was hunting wild game, and this was his prey. And he right. just, you know, scored. So right. I take great offense to that particular officer. Um, and I don't care if it was a white person he was on or a black officer on a white person right. like that. It's just wrong. We are not taught that. That is not something that runs through the veins of a person who understands and appreciates humanity. Mm. That's another human being. That's someone's son, someone's daughter, someone's child, someone's father. We don't know these things, despite whatever the history was. It didn't. The end result should not have been what it was. No, absolutely not. You know, nobody should die that that way. And the thing is, now a lot's coming out from the past. You know, things happened years ago. Body cameras, I think, are, are a great tool for us as police officers, and they can save us because they show the truth. But also, if if you do something incorrect, they're going to show that also. We're also in an age where on every corner there's a camera. Right. You know, they taught us in the academy, and this was back in 1988. They said, every window has eyes. If you can see a window, somebody can see you. Mm, right. That. Right. So when we when we think about this moment, I think there's this interesting dynamic at play uh, within the American political system and among American voters where I think, you know, Americans talk constantly about about change and we complain constantly about politics. That's that's an American pastime in a lot of ways. But I, I think, in truth, our change tends to be very incremental. It tends to be very slow. We're not actually a country that has hugely radical changes. Now, I do think electing Donald Trump uh, four years ago was a radical change. But, <laughs> no way. But, right, yeah, but, but prior to that, right, President Obama being the first black president was hugely important uh, on a symbolic level, but on a policy level, right, I think— I think that the policies were not, you know, radically different from previous presidents. But now it does seem like there's this appetite for uh, tremendous change. People are, you know, writing about completely reimagining police forces. So you're someone who, again, given your community mindedness, I, I'm really interested to hear if you could put together a police force uh how would you go about it? Let's say that you're the you're a cabinet member at the federal level and you could, you know, create how police forces are made in cities across the nation. And obviously different forces uh, are doing different things depending on where they are. But what are some of the ways you would go about that, Frank? How would you recruit people and what kinds of trainings would you have? What kind of tools would you use? How much does that job pay? Let's give you I don't know how much does the president make? What does the president make? Two two fifty? We've got guys at my job that are patrolmen that are making that a year. So, you know, they're putting in the time, but no, you know, when I look at the Boston Police Department, which I think is one of the premier police departments in the country, you know, and I've been on when um the consent decree was was around when um as a result of affirmative action, you know, you had mm -hmm. X amount of police out, X amount of blacks, X amount of whites. X amount of Asians and uh, Hispanics, et cetera. And even the consent decree has been drawn for a long time. There is no more uh, affirmative action. It's everybody's here on their own merit. Mm. You know, I've been to many police departments because even in the Volley Against Violence program, we would travel all over the country and all over the world and create this program with other officers because everybody's trying to create a better relationship between the young people they serve 
and the police officers that are working. You know, our goal is to go home the way we came to work. And if we can change the life of one individual in our entire career, we have succeeded. Right. So with that being said, I think we have a, the Boston Police Department as of now is kind of great. And I'll tell you why. Our commissioner has come up through the ranks. The commissioner before him came up through the ranks. We don't have the racial disparities on the Boston Police Department that most departments do. And our reason is because our department looks more like our community. Mm. You know, the, the, the young people that come on this job, the majority of them are city kids. Right. You know, so when you grow up in the city, you kind of have a different um, understanding of whether you grew up in West Roxbury, Roxbury, South Boston, Dorchester, Mattapan, High Park, Chinatown, East Boston. You're still a city kid. Right. And with that being said, it's not like a kid coming here from Wellesley who's never interacted with a black, a Hispanic, or an Asian. Right. Or, uh, uh, you know, and they don't know what to do. I've always right. said, you know, it's not, the, the fear isn't there. It's like, you know, I know, I know, I know what you're about. Come on. Right. Come on. You know, it's almost like a different language that we speak also. But also I noticed that anyone who lives in a housing development, black, white, Asian, or Hispanic, doesn't matter. We have them in South Boston, Dorchester, Mattapan, Roxbury, everywhere. There's low-income housing. Low-income housing doesn't have a color. Kids that live in the projects of, of South Boston are no different than kids who live in the projects of Mattapan. Because all the developments, they're all there as a result of the same reasons. And if it's generational, it has nothing to do with color. It's there, there for the same reasons. I was, yeah. I was going to ask you if you thought that it was important for police officers to live where they work. And this sounds like your answer to that question in a lot of ways. You know, I grew up in the South End. Uh, I went to Cathedral Grammar School. I spent so much time at Cathedral Projects, going to Southern Boys Club, uh, becoming a Boy Scout, going up the ranks in the Boy Scouts, and then, you know, skiing for youth enrichment services, all these great little um, functions, little programs that they had that my mother found for me because we didn't have any money. I didn't grow up wealthy at all. I mean, I got a good education and that was about the extent of it. You know, and I had to run with the rest. But they mm. found us a bunch of programs and stuff that help us out. So, in the, in the South End, it was very different because we didn't have any racial issues. We had everything else. We had drugs, we had <laughs> prostitution, we had gambling, we right. had gangs, everything. But it was, none of it was racial. And the reason for that was most most of the people in the South End were first generation from somewhere else. Yeah, and so it was a new start for a lot of people. We nobody we weren't we weren't taught how to hate. What a beautiful thing, right? Oh, it was great. It was great That's a gorgeous you know, thing. Um, there's a great little website on Facebook called South End Kids, and you look at the diversity of the, the kids we all grew up with, and a lot of us are still friends now. They're still alive. This was a neighborhood where black kids played hockey on a regular basis. You know, when did you see that? Right. You know, and, and the white it kids sounds, play sounds like, yeah. And we're good. We're right. good. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the, when we see pockets of that in, in the United States, to me, that's a version of the American dream. When there's harmony at a, at a deeply grounded community level, that's a wonderful thing that, that is possible here. Seems decreasingly so for a lot of people, but it's but it's great that you you lived that and saw that and felt that. Yeah, I, I did. I was very happy with it. Also, you know, 
anybody's parents could reprimand you. If you were doing mm. something you weren't supposed to do, and Mrs. Bowers, who lived across the alley, come out and say, hey, you know you're not supposed to be doing that. Stop. And you stopped because, number one, you felt you were caught, and number two, right. you, didn't want, you didn't want her to tell your parents. Right. You know, that was going to end up. You know, but in terms of police officers, I think we've got a great police department. I think the, the, the guys, the, the men and women on this job do a spectacular job with what they have. Um, I have a great admiration for our commissioner, you know, um, Commissioner Gross, who came up through the ranks and has participated in my tennis program. Um, he's a guy who you can kind of count on. Plus, he's not afraid. He's not yeah. a politician. He's not a politician at all. But he will stand by his guys. You know, yeah. the thing is, you, you don't mind working for somebody who you know has your back. You know, right. even speaking, you go a little further. You know, the mayor we have, Marty Walsh. Marty's great. Before Marty was elected, um, I had a nice breakfast with him and another friend of mine who is a police officer who's doing a lot of stuff for youth. And we expressed our vision of Boston in terms of what we wanted for these kids. And Marty Walsh said, right there, you know, if this is what you want, I'll help you get it. I'm elected wow. to get it. And That's Marty great. Walsh, he came to the tennis program years ago. I have pictures of him with the kids, and he's come back since. It wasn't like I'm coming one time for a photo op. And he's always had an ear to the ground. If I wanted to have a conversation with him, we did. If I let him know what we needed, he was, he's been very good to us. My whole thing was, you know, the, the young people we get to influence and the older people we get to take care of. The generation mm. in between, like your age to, to 60, uh, we're, we're, we're creating havoc. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, we're creating havoc. I mean, it's like, I, I don't know how to save a 40 year old or a 30 year old. I know yeah. how to save a 10 or a 15 year old. Maybe that 15 may be tough. Yeah. But I know how I can influence a, a, a six to 13 year old. And I know that once someone passes the 65 mark and they reach that stage of what I call the golden years, they've learned, they've forgotten more than I've learned. To sit down with them for five or ten minutes, it's amazing what you'll learn. We did a, a recycled teenagers tennis program over in South Boston, and I had about 20 ladies. And for the two years that I did that, I had all 20 ladies. And I remember we had our second anniversary, and I said, guess what today is? And they were like, well, I said, you know, today's the anniversary of, of two years? And they were like, you're kidding me. And when I first started, the coordinator said, Frank, you got to be careful of getting attached to these ladies because they, um, <laughs> they, they're all older. Our oldest one was 93 years old. Wow. We called her Queen Marie. And then we had another woman, Anna, who was legally blind and legally deaf, but had no problem hitting a tennis ball. So, you know, I don't know who her doctor is, but there's nothing yeah. I think these women couldn't do. And oh, you know, we're great. playing tennis. But the, the good thing about it was after two years, I said, guess what? And they were like, what? I says. We've been doing it for two years. Oh, that's great. I say, no one has died. And everybody paused. I said, I've decided that the secret to longevity is tennis. You heard it here on Jobscast, folks. The secret <laughs> to longevity, <laughs> according to Frank Williams, is tennis. <laughs> it's tennis. That's it. That's it. You know, we all got a great chuckle. They've all outlived their husbands, so that, that's a little information also. But uh, it's uh, it was great. To get back on topic, um. I think our department here is is an department that should be looked at by many others because the the racial uh, bias I can't say it doesn't exist, but nothing like what I've seen elsewhere. 
Um, yeah. Our guys here, there are many reasons why it doesn't. I think we're probably one of the best trained police departments in the country. Um, guys get paid really well. That's public information. You look it up. Uh, they get paid really well. And we realize that if you make a bad decision or even a questionable decision with the amount of discretion that you're allotted on this job and you you deprive someone of their, their life or liberty, there's an expense that comes with that. And it could be an emotional expense. It could be a physical expense. It could be a financial expense. Reputation goes a long way on this job. You know, most of us are here for 32 years and we go. And you don't want to go through your career with that reputation. Frank, say a little bit more, if say a little bit more, if you can, about what you think separates the Boston police force in terms of training, maybe from other police forces. We've got an an absolutely incredible academy. You know, um, our recruits, we have what's called a cadet program where a young person, I think at the age of 18, can go into the cadet program and after they're in there for two years, they're eligible to, to, to go into the police academy and come out as a police officer at a young age. Uh, the cadet program teaches them a lot of the administrative ins and outs of how the department works. Um, it's run out of headquarters. Some people work directly with superintendents. Others work in homicide. You know, they get to see different parts of the police department early on. And they can make the decision as to, is this what they really want to do? Is this really their dream job? And our academy is very, very strenuous. It's not a cakewalk. Once you're in, you're there for, I think, it's six to six months. And once you graduate, you have a year's probation. And during that time period, you work in pretty much every district. So you work in a district that may be predominantly white, black, Hispanic, Asian. You do the whole gambit. You don't just go to one area and you stay there. Once you do that, once you do your year's rotation, you're assigned to a particular district. And I know now we have a policy where after five years, they like to move you around. So you get to see a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and learn something new. But like I said before, the young people that come on this job are primarily city kids right. who have dreamed about this. And like I said, our training, they give you the tools. Uh, we learn constitutional law, um, domestic violence law, motor vehicle law, crimes against children. I mean, it's just, there's just so motor vehicle law. There's just so much that the academy teaches. I thought the academy was harder than anything I ever took in college or high school. Wow. You're there from 7.30 in the morning till 4 o'clock in the evening. And then you have the physical aspect of it where they do the training. And just for the record, choking is not taught in the academy. You know, they teach us other things, land methods. They teach. We have uh, some martial arts instructors that teach you how to go. If you have to go hand-to-hand, you do. And the thing about it, most city kids, they've gone hand-to-hand before anyway. Right. They have, you know, they have experience. Oh, they've, they've had their asses kicked on yeah. someone else's ass, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. And we all have bumps and bruises because that's what happens. I mean, you sure. know, it happens. And some of it is over the silliest things, and the next day you're back there playing the same sport with the same person again. You know, no, one, no one's mad about it. It's just you had, to, you had to put your hands up. So whereas you may take somebody from the suburbs who comes to the city, when somebody puts their hands up, they feel totally threatened, and the gun comes out. That's actually so, a really interesting point, that there's – it sounds like there's a, a familiarity with a certain amount of danger that a lot of that a lot of the city kids have, which actually increases their comfort in other situations. And so someone who maybe doesn't have that, right, they might be uh, overly eager or, or quick to defend themselves in extreme ways. Is, is that does that hold? 
I think that does hold. And also to take it another notch, the big kid, you got the city kid, and then you got the kid who's bigger, and he challenges him. The, the younger, the little city kid goes, challenge, let's go. <laughs> let's see how this ends up. You know, I mean, because he knows he, he's held his own before. Whereas, like in the case with was George Floyd, I think it was fear and intimidation, you know, and it was just like, okay, I can't win this. Whereas I think city kids are like, I'm going to win this. I mean, the last right. thing we do is, is reach for a weapon. It's the last thing. You know, I, I see a lot of stuff online, you know, the people get shot for speeding and they have a gun pointed in their face, this and that. We sit here and go, what's this person thinking? Why do you need a... It just it just angers me so much to see other officers do this kind of stuff because it's not what we do, and it right. just makes us all look bad. Frank, I, I there's a there's a person on Twitter who I believe he was ex CIA and also local law enforcement for a number of years. His name is Patrick Skinner. You could look up his Twitter account online, and he said something that went viral. A lot of people were talking about. He said, if you walk into a situation with your badge and your gun out. You're going to use at least one of them. I was thinking about that in relation to you. I get the impression that you've walked into a lot of situations with, with your heart out more more so than your badge or your gun. And well, and that's how we met, right? <laughs> well, you 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 read my mind. I was literally about to tell listeners too that we met about five years ago when I was doing a community building project in which. I literally, I was just saying hello and trying to do that uh, for a thousand days in a row. And I saw you and your colleague outside and uh, you guys were super friendly. I said, I'm doing, you know, yada, yada, doing a little community building project. And you said, oh, that's great. And we got in a picture and I'm so happy we stayed in touch because now we're having this conversation. But if if you think uh, that's true, that you do tend to kind of go into situations with your heart out, would you say that you're in the minority of police officers or the majority? I think the majority of them want to do good, but I think sometimes fear gets in the way. Interesting. You know, you, I think that if you have good training, you trust your training. Uh, I know that I go into a situation and if I'm going to be met with a racial situation, uh, you try to diffuse it by finding something funny. Right. Oh, oh, I'm here because I'm I'm bothering you because I'm black, right? <laughs> they, they, then they look at you. Totally disarm them because you just, yeah. you just said what they what they want to say, and right. now it's like, okay, where do we go from here? Okay, we got to chuckle. Well, what's going on? You know, we're here because of this reason, as you know. Now, we don't want to be here because of other things we could be doing. But how do we? What what can we do to make you, to get you to stop doing what you're doing? Right. Like the biggest complaint right now is which is a great work. which is a great way to I mean even that question to me seems so powerful because it creates a dialogue rather than what a lot of people imagine as this aggressively hierarchical situation where a, a police officer comes in with not a lot of understanding and a lot of aggression and again that doesn't sound like uh, from your experience that's the normal case but but I think that's such a great leading question that you have there. Well, you know, it's uh, no one's looking for a fight. Right. If we have to, we will. Uh, we prefer to be to strengthen numbers. So if I have to call for help, help's going to come. Uh, but if I can, it's easier with one, one or two police officers and four or five people to come to an agreement than it is to have eight police officers and four people. Because now it looks like, okay, we're intimidating the crap out of them. Or, or sometimes even just having a person that looks like that crowd 
like if it's a Hispanic group and it's a, a predominantly white white officers there, the Hispanic officer may be able to speak the language and say something to them, and all of a sudden it's like, all right, brother, we're out, and that's it. If you, if you work in a predominantly white neighborhood, you have a couple black officers, and there's, you know, I'm talking to the kid. The kid doesn't want to hear anything from me, but my other brother officer who might be white might say, listen, man, come on, we just, we just let's just clear the park. Because he's angry at me already, so I should take a step back. And if he's going to listen to one of his own, sure, that's fine. Go ahead. doesn't bother me. I don't feel, well, you listen to him, you have to listen to me. No, no. If he can handle it, he can handle it. And a lot of times, one of the best ways to diffuse a situation is to have a woman present, a woman officer. And a lot of uh, the officers in our job, they, they have the same training that everybody else has. Um, but, you know, it's difficult for four or five guys to be disrespectful you know, with a woman present because they have a mother at home, maybe a sister, maybe a grandmother, and they're all taught, listen, you got to be respectful of women are there. So whereas the the male officer there and it's cussing and this and that and da-da-da, all of a sudden she shows up and we kind of take a step back and put her in the forefront. And she's like, come on, guys, look, do we really have to be disrespectful? Why can't we come to an agreement? We just want right. the pot cleared out. You, can, you, can you do something else? And they're like, all right, sis, you got it, you know. And right. so, you know we're all we're all getting back in the car because the goal is to come home the way you went to work. That is the most important thing. You want to go home the way you went to work, unharmed. Um, I think that the biggest issue right now going on in the city is fireworks. So fireworks are going up all over this city. I mean, three, four o'clock in the morning. I'm even listening to them like, oh my god. Trust me, we have a small dog who absolutely hates them. So we're <laughs> we're well aware too. My neighbor just packed up her dogs and went to hip switch. Really? She's not come back to the six. She said, nope, my dogs can't take it. I mean, I so get we, it. Oh, yeah. So we have special cars assigned to fireworks because they're going off all over. These cars go through fireworks. And you've got a couple ways you can deal with it. You can go there. You know they have fireworks. And there's a bunch of them because there's no one person setting off fireworks. It's always 20 or 30 or 40 of them because everyone wants to see. So a two-man car shows up. All right, what are you going to do? It's two of you, 40 of them. Are you going to take the fireworks? Well. There's a party that goes, let's just take this shit. But then it's like, you know what? Do you want anyone taking something you bought, you paid for? No, no one does. Exactly. So what's the solution to that? How about we roll in? All right, hey, guys, we see you got the fireworks, da-da-da, da-da-da. We get calls to come here. So I tell you what, how much more do you have? Like, are you going to take them? I'm just asking how much more fireworks you have. And he opens up the trunk, got a whole bunch. All right, I'll tell you what. Light off one more batch, close the trunk, and we'll clear out. And we'll start this again. We'll restart the clock tomorrow. Seems like we a reasonable compromise. We, we, we just don't want to come back here tonight for the same thing. So they all look around. And like, this could be a war that we could lose. But it's like, you know what? You got that. You guys are cool. Thank you so much. We're going to light up this one batch. And we're going to, I said, then it's like, okay, also, I have your plate here. You got to clean up. I'm like, we right. tag them. I'm like, you're, you're doing fireworks. There's a littering ordinance, 100 bucks. So when we come back, we're going to let you light up your fireworks, but you're also responsible for cleaning up this. And then he says, well, I didn't, I didn't make the big mess. I just did a couple. You want to light fireworks? You can light your fireworks, but if we come back and papers are all here, <laughs> you're going to get the fine. Now right. he's thinking, do I really want to light these fireworks? He's like, what Frank, have they been mostly work? mostly high school kids from your experience, or is it a wide oh, range yeah. of ages? Everyone who got a stimulus check. 
Yeah. <laughs> they spent it all on fireworks, I guess. Everyone on the stimulus check and working from home has fireworks. And they're about to get more. So, I mean... This- I mean, there's just so much pent up energy, and I guess, I guess, lighting off fireworks is is one way to uh, to exhaust it. Oh, it's just. Uh, but you know, it, it's it's the experience. And I'm I'm have, I'm in my my 32nd year. And I'm having a good time. I'm your 32nd year as a police officer. Yeah, and I'm having. Wow, a good time. 32 years. You've been a police officer for as long as I've been alive. I'm 33. Thanks uh, a lot, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you're you're a young man. Don't worry. You said you you grew up in the South End too. I did. I grew up in the South End. But the South End wasn't the South End that you know. The oh, South right. I'm End sure it was totally was different. The absolute, by far, poorest neighborhood in the entire city of Boston. Oh, wow. My, parent, my parents bought their house in 1961 for $2,500, the whole building. $2,500. Wow. The whole building. Yeah, that's just unfathomable now. I'm sure even if we adjust for inflation, it's a very, very, very low number compared to uh, real estate now. Um, tell us, Frank, how has how has Boston changed in in 32 years? And uh, I'm, I'm also curious about, you know, your your relationship to people. I mean, how has your relationship to people changed as a result of the work that you've been doing for for this time? Well, you know, when I was growing up in the South End, you, you, you couldn't cross Albany Street to go to South Boston as a person of color. There was no way you went to wow. South Boston. And that was enforced informally or was that something in, on the books? Informally. Informally, which I know you know, is the as, same as for, there's not a it's not a meaningful difference. I was just curious, though. You know, as a as a young person of color, you just didn't go to South Boston. It was just like wow. you, you knew. But the South End was a, mil, a, mel, a melting pot, so you could go there. Uh, also, growing up, if you wanted fireworks, you could go to North End and get them. If you were a person of color or Hispanic, but only during that week before the fourth. Other right. than that, you, you couldn't go to the North End. Uh, as a result of, of certain political things that have happened, um, Boston has become a very diverse city, and it's not segregated like it was before. You know, blacks can live anywhere, whites can live anywhere, Hispanics can live anywhere, Asians can live anywhere. And when you travel around the city, you, you see that everything is everywhere. And they're getting along. This, this wasn't the youth that I saw. This was something that happened later on. That must give you a lot of hope. Yeah, but you know we're still known as, as the racist, most racist city in America. We do have that reputation, yes. Yes, we do, and you know I, I watched the um, one of the comedians did something. I know Noah, Trevor Noah did one, and somebody else mm. did one also, and uh, they they imitate the bast and you know. The whole right. thing. And, and, and it is funny, but you know for a long time things were just very different, but they've gotten a lot better over time. A lot, but there's still a lot of work to be done, a ton of work to be done. But, you know, it is getting better. But I think that what's happening over time is there's very little white and there's very little real black. Right. You know, we're, we're kind of all melting in together where we're going to have no choice but to, to get along. I sometimes think of myself as, as a, a radical moderate, which is an oxymoron, in, in the sense that when you look at change over time, and you see what you're describing, which seems like an unalloyed good to have uh, people of of any race, religion, creed be able to live where they want. And that wasn't the case several decades ago. That seems 
that seems wonderful to me. Uh, that was but redlining. I think redlining, right? For that for that to be gone seems seems like a win for uh, all of society. But I think I think that there's a reluctance, and I understand it, to talk about any any positive developments when, as you say, there's so much work to be done. But to me, I don't I don't see it as a binary. I think we just need to hold up both truths. On the one hand, there's been some progress made, and we can we can take some solace and comfort in that. But on the other hand, I don't I don't see basically I don't see calling out uh, positive changes as a call to complacency. I actually see it as positive motivation. Look what we've done. Now we can do more of it. But I think I think other people take a different tack and they say. No, you know, you don't talk about what's good in the world. I mean, come on, we're in the middle of a pandemic. The world's falling apart. Uh, you know, it's it's ridiculous to talk about good things that have happened. I don't necessarily share that view. I think I don't I, either. I, I think people are are more motivated on the whole by seeing uh, examples of positive change, and I think we do have some of them. Obviously, and again, don't get me wrong. This is not a call to complacency. This is a call to more good work, more community building. Um, how do you feel about that view? Uh, I think you're right. I think that the fact that we're having this discussion goes a long way. Um, I think that there are topics that people, it's almost like they don't want to have the discussions. But right. the only way we're going to come up with a solution is, is if we are open and honest about the situation and figure out together what, what okay, I know that this happened and it made you uncomfortable. Now, what can I do to make you more comfortable? Now, is it something uh, to be done? Is it a law change? Is it just me saying, look, I won't do it again. You know, that, that's all. I won't do it again. And it's like, okay. There's, there, there is change to be made. And I think the changes are happening. I'm sure they're not happening fast enough for anybody because we want immediate gratification. That's just how our society is. We're just so used to, you know, going to the store and get what, you, what we want. I heard people bitching about Amazon. Gee, it took four days for my Amazon package to get here. It's a <laughs> pandemic. Right. <laughs> right. You know, right some my, stuff's coming from China. It, exactly. Yeah, my, my girlfriend and I had the experience where we went to a restaurant that had outdoor seating in Haverhill, and it was physically distanced very well. We were 10 feet away from the nearest people. Everyone had masks on. It seemed as safe as can be if you want to risk going to a restaurant. And, you know, we noticed uh, some people nearby – kind of complaining uh, vocally about how slow the service was. And we were just thinking, the servers are taking all precautions to make this experience possible for you. You know, instead of saying, gee, we're at the restaurant, it's going to take a little while, but it's a great night to be out. We get to have a conversation and the food's coming. So right. They're looking at everything else. Exactly. And, you know, I, I wonder, Frank, if this maybe is just a difference of optimism and pessimism in a lot of ways. I sometimes resist that classification. I, I, I think that there's a way to be a realist either way. You got two choices when you wake up in the morning. Your day is going to be fabulous or your day is going to suck. <laughs> there, there, is, there is no other one. It's either one or the other. Now, if you think your day is going to be fabulous, guess what? Your day is going to be fabulous. Since you sent me that email, you know, reconnecting us. I was like, yep. wow, I remember this kid. And I got the picture. I went, yep. I was over at six. I, I saw Freddie. I said, Freddie, remember this kid? And he goes, yeah, right from the stage. And I says, he's got this, uh, you know, graduate from Harvard. He's, he's got this like podcast, something like that, you know, because we're like, what's a podcast? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, what's this stuff? Now you're on it. <laughs> I'm telling him, and he's just like, oh, that's really cool. I said, well, he asked me to be on the show. He goes, why you? 
I should probably because <laughs> he didn't have your email. Yeah, you gave me your card. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, the thing is, on this job, what I try to do is, if I do interact with somebody, here's my card. Mm. If you have a problem, reach out to me. If I don't know the answer, I'll point you in the direction of somebody that may know the answer. But the philosophy is, treat everyone like you want your mother, your father, your sister, your brother treated. That's simple. Color has nothing to do with anything. Now, to go back to this whole thing, if you if you wake up and you say it's going to be a good day, oh, back to when I got the email and I read it, I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. I, call, I reach out back to you. We talk. I'm not a, a, the best email person. It takes a while to prime an email, da-da-da. But when we spoke I mean, on for the, the phone, record, you sent me a very nice email. <laughs> well, thank you. But when we spoke on the phone, we just ran with the conversation because that's what my generation did. We're more of a, a let's talk to each other as right. opposed to you and my daughter's generation, my son's generation, which communicate through email. What I will, a compliment I will pay you is your social skills are phenomenal. Oh, there thank are so you, many you. millennials that can do anything on paper, not paper. They don't know what paper is. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said yeah, that. Right. But, on the computer. But the idea of actually having a conversation with someone is just beyond them. I guess I'm and, a I'm a throwback in, in that way that I, I really like to converse with people. <laughs> you're retro. You know, it, the thing is, you, you get tone in a conversation. You don't get tone in paper. Tone is huge. Tone is tone is so crucial. I mean, there's I like to say that there's the what of the conversation. There's the content. And then there's the how. And this is directly related to a lot of what we're talking about today about law enforcement, where you go to the situation with the fireworks and your how, your method of communication is, all right, guys, how many more fireworks do you have? You know, just just asking. He says, what are you going to take them? He said, no, I'm just asking. Right. And so if you go in with a different how, you know, how many fireworks do you have? You know, that that changes tone, changes everything. I think I think the how is as important in conversations as the what. Uh, and I think people people don't always realize that. Yeah, like I said before, no one wants this stuff taken away. And, you know, you don't have to go in and piss people off. And especially if they're expecting you to come in aggressive and you don't, you caught them off guard. And then you take advantage of that moment. We have lots of guys in our job that play sports. Some have been, like, in the trades. They've had to deal with people of different um, colors and ethnic backgrounds on a regular basis. It's not hard for us. But I really right. – I really, think of a person who comes from a predominantly white environment or a predominantly black environment where they've never interacted or very little interactions with people of a, of, that are, are different from them in appearance, they're afraid. I've seen, I've seen people show up and be afraid. I'm yeah. not afraid. Right. What's the, the word, my thing is this, I can't lose. Because if you're beating my ass, I'm just going to call for help. You know, I don't need to shoot you. There's no reason at all. And we're taught that, I mean, we're talking about human life versus even versus property. Someone robs a bank. Do you shoot them in the bank while in, in the back while they're running away? Why would you do that? You're gonna you're gonna lose a life and it's for money for ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Let the person yeah. run. Follow him. You have a car, you have a bike, give his description. Eventually this person's gonna get tired. You have the entire department at your disposal. Follow him. If this person happens to have a weapon, and we always assume they do, but we try, we want to see it first. I'm not sure. Take cover. Take cover until you see the weapon. Even when you do see the weapon, let's give him the opportunity to put the weapon down. And if he decides he's going to fire on us, 
Now, I've always said this, and I'll probably get in trouble for it, but if you illegally possess a weapon and you take it upon yourself to shoot at the police, you should have an expectation of death. You illegally possess a weapon, you're committing a crime, and you fire at the police. You, you shouldn't expect to get out of that. So but, that's a harsh statement, but, but you, you really, you shouldn't expect to. So, Frank, I want to go back, actually, because, so let's, so then let's look at that situation. Shots are fired, and then the situation gets into different legal terrain. You mentioned earlier that part of the reason why the Boston Police Department is such a good one is because of the people coming from the community and the commissioner having, having your back and the mayor having your back. But it's interesting because when you said that, of course, it makes sense to me. You're you're there. You're working every day in the community. And so, of course, you want the leader of your organization to have your back. But I think in the popular consciousness, a lot of people think that's part of the problem, that police have each other's back to an extreme extent is why we have some instances where uh, there's brutality and then, you know, the police officers are not punished uh, appropriately. It sounds like this isn't as big of an issue in the Boston PD, so I really just want you to reflect on more the national scene. Of course, if there's anything from your own experience in Boston, I'd love to hear it too. Okay, so one of the things we have here, and we all signed it, it's called the integrity rule. It is so important. There are a couple of things you will get fired for immediately on this job. One of them is if you, if you violate the drug laws twice, because the first time they'll get you help. If you do it twice, you're gone. The other one is untruthfulness. If you lie on this job, you will be fired. It's not there's a chance you'll be fired. You will be fired for untruthfulness. The integrity rule, what it means is if I'm with you and you do something which is a direct violation of our directive rules and regulations, you're just as guilty. If you try to intervene like if uh, like when they had that with, with George Floyd, those three officers just stood there and watched it. They need to go to jail, too. You can't look at that and feel like, hmm, something's not right here. They made no attempt to push him off or anything at all. It was just they put they just sat there and watched it. Like, like, I don't know whether they were, they were afraid to do anything or what, but there's a certain aspect in a human being. We know when we're right. Well, actually, we don't know when we're right, but we know when we're wrong. Yeah. We think we're right. But there's no doubt in your mind, unless you have some serious mental health issues, that you don't know when something's wrong. I can't think of anyone who watched that video and said, you know, he had it coming. Right. And I think it's for you to come down unequivocally on that and say that the bystanders were absolutely in the wrong and should be prosecuted, I think is I think is good to hear. This is called the bystander effect in psychology, by the way, where on a subway you see someone getting harassed and you might be able to intervene and people don't because there's this sense that, well, the other person can help out. I don't have to do it. Someone else can do it. And I think it's important for us to recognize this, that the, that the bystander effect is it is this sort of bias that we have uh, where we want to kick the can further down the road. But I mean, in, in this case where a life was clearly being uh, choked away, it, it was it was really an egregious example of that, of people standing by in a way that was just awful. Uh, and we've all seen the video, right? Frank, do you, yeah. I know you have to go soon. So just a couple more questions. This has been so great. Um, Frank, do you, I think I know your answer to this question already, but do, do you think there are, let's say a sizable number of police officers who think that people should be afraid of them? Or put another way, do you think that many police officers want people to be afraid of them in order you know, for them to do their jobs more easily or efficiently because 
people are just so obedient. I, I get the sense that you're not like that at all. Again, you no, you I'm invited not. conversation, but again, there's this there's this view that in a lot of cases cops are power hungry and they want people to be afraid of them. Can you can you speak to that? Uh, I, I don't agree with that. Uh, is, are there a few egomaniacs in the job? Sure. Uh, in terms of here, it's not what we do. It is just so we want to walk in. As, this is our. We can't lose. I mean, right, as you cannot, said, yeah. I have, I have mace. I have a stick. I'm trained. I have a firearm, and I have access to the biggest gang in the entire city. So when you know you, when you know you cannot lose, you really don't have to go in hard. Let's go in as soft as possible. And if they escalate, we can escalate. The, the higher they go up, the higher we go up. We right. can, if they want to come down, guess what? We're, we, we'll, we'll come down first because we want to walk away with a victory. And a victory is the opposite, the, the crime that was committed, we've got the suspect, and we're walking away uninjured, as is that suspect. The goal is not to harm this individual. We learn how to take a person down to make an arrest. It is like a science, and we're all taught it from the smallest women that come on this job to the biggest men. It's the same. It's mm. all the same. There's not, we get nothing out of showing up. Look, I'm six foot one and I'm 220 pounds. You got to move. No. Guys, <laughs> come on. We got to clear this area. Do me a favor. Let's go somewhere else. All right, you got that. All right, fine. You know, or somebody with the whole thing now that marijuana is legal, a lot of people like to smoke weed and look directly in the cop's eyes. You know, there was a time when, when I was on where if you lit up a joint, you got arrested. You had weed, you got arrested. Now right. they light it up and smoke it and look you in the eyes. But, you know, we know on the state level it's legal. So what do you do? You can't smoke marijuana here? Eh, something you just got to leave alone. Or, yeah. or you, might, you might say, listen, brother, listen, don't be disrespectful. I know you got your weed and you can smoke it. But really, right directly in front of me and these three little kids that are beside me that I'm talking to. That could be that, your brother or sister. Take right. it somewhere else. And then they identify with it, and they'll go, you know what? You got that. They'll put it away, and they'll walk away. They're going to smoke right. their weed, but it doesn't have to be right then and there. Because the question is with the kid is, why is that guy looks at the officer like, why is he doing drugs right in front of you? I think that, that tableau is, is great to, to remember because – I think that there's I, I was thinking about our conversation and preparing for it. And I think now when you read articles online and you, you get a sense of the energy that people have with regard to the protests, we know that lasting change happens when we make systemic changes. When we look at education, when we look at government, when policing, whatever it is, lasting change happens with systemic change. And I think people have anger at systems in a lot of ways appropriately. But I think the interesting thing, Frank, is that you you can talk about systems, right? But you can't actually talk to systems. You can only talk to people. You can only, We can only talk to each other. We can only talk to individuals. And I do think to the extent that positive change is possible, as we were talking about earlier, we have many examples of history of it, of it happening from the ground up, of upward pressure being applied by people talking right here. Obviously, I'm biased toward conversation. It's one of my preferred mediums of exchanges, and I'm really glad we were able to do this. But I, I do think that 
that person who is blowing, you know, weed smoke in your face in front of the kids, there, there could be an aspect where that person is thinking, you know, I could do this now. I'm going to stick it to the cops. They used to bust me all the time for weed. And in a way, that person is responding to a system or their view of a system. But I think when we live our lives on a daily level, we, of course, shouldn't forget about systemic injustices. But we, at the same time, need to prioritize these other values, which I think you do, which are values of community, kindness, communication, honesty, respect, right? And then when you, and, and what you did in that situation, you sort of highlighted, hey, there are three kids around here. This could be your, you know, your nephew, your niece, whatever. And then people kind of get it. They're like, oh, wait, you're right. The most important thing is actually to be a really good community member. So uh, I'm, I'm, I don't know if you have any responses to that, this idea of, of systems versus individuals, but that's kind of my thinking on the topic. We got to find a common denominator, and it exists. You just have to look for it. My mother I like said, that. Either, either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. You can't just not say something. You, it's just, you, you got to say something. So, like I said, no matter what the situation, if you dig, and I think most police officers are great communicators. We're quick with, you know how you sit around with your buddies, you talk shit, da 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 da. You know, it's like playing the game called the dozens. You say something about me, I say something about you, back and forth. We're <laughs> good at that. If you can disarm someone with laughter, it opens a door. You don't need much room, but once you get that door open of that common denominator, this person who's doing the drugs also has a son or a daughter or a nephew, and he can look at this five-year-old that I'm talking to, and I look at him like it's his nephew, and what do you want that done? He thinks about it twice. That's and that's right. when they usually that's go, right. you know what? We're out of here. And then that's you great. see these people later on, and you know, when they're not with their buddies, and they're not trying to be tough, and they'll pull you aside, go up, so you got a minute, and go, yeah, sure, what's going on? They go, I just want to say, you know, thanks for being, you know, bringing that to my attention. You know, I didn't even look at it that way, but you could have gone a different way. You could have said this, you could have done that, but, you know, you just were real good about it, man. You're cool. You're cool. I'm like, well, you know what? That's all I wanted to do today was be cool. So thank you very much for letting me know that I'm cool. Next time you see the person, you get a wave. Hello, officer. How are you? Or you may even be in a situation and that particular individual will be there and something's about to go down. And that one particular street person might say, yo, not, not with him. Right. What do you mean? Said, no, not with him. It's like, what? It's like, no, not with him. And because of the street cred that this particular individual has, you might not get hurt. And like I said, we're not trying to get hurt. If somebody, the, the same guy that's smoking the weed, who I said to him, you know, this could be like a, your one, a nephew or something like that, he identified with it like a year later, there was a situation, this is reality, a year later when something was about to go down and it was myself, another officer, and a, a bunch of other individuals and he, he showed up and he was like, not with them. And I was like, what do you mean? He says, not with them. And that was the end of it. He held so much street cred that when he said, the buck stops here, it stopped. I love that so much, Frank, because I think when we think about community, there's no real data point in which we might be able to capture what you just described. But if there were some sort of unit that we can measure, a, a community unit, you you increased the total of community units in, in that interaction. And I think that that's, that's really great. And we can't always... 
this is why we need to have these conversations to see how that happens informally, to see how there's that trust between you and the other officer, you and the person in the community. And that's how, you know, that's how the world works. Human human beings, we are messy creatures and we're, we're constantly negotiating and uh, we have to be flexible and accommodating. So I think that's that's really cool. I think people will like to hear that story. Communication is it. That's it. That's the whole key. I would love, before we close, for you to just say what you've been doing and when you got started with your tennis work. And I just have one other question, too. What comes to mind when I say, what are you most and least proud of from your time working as a police officer? Wow. You had to pull up the big gun at the end, didn't you? I had to. We got to go out with a bang here. Oh, well, you know, the racial divide on the police department has gotten smaller, but there's still a lot of work to be done. One of the things that that really hurts me is that people think we are so racist here. And I'd hate to think that I've just lived here so long that I don't see it. I'm so deep in the forest that I don't see the trees. Mm. I've gone other places and experienced it. But I think, I, I think we're, we've come a long way, and I still think there's a long way to go. Um, I think we need to empower our young people more than anything and just try to try to be decent to one another. That's yeah. all. Just, just try to be decent. You know, no one's asking for a whole lot. It doesn't take much to say hello. You know, a lot of police officers now are giving high fives. We started that at the, the tennis program, which we'll get to that. But um, say hello. You'd be surprised at who say hello back. After yeah, and saying hello, saying, you have a conversation. I, I was just gonna say, you say hello, and then you're in a podcast with someone. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's it. But in terms of my program, um, I have some influence over the Sportsman's Tennis and Enrichment Center in Dorchester, where I sit on the board of directors. I've been there for about probably 15 years. We created a program called Volley Against Violence. It's in, in cooperation with the Bosque Police Tennis Program, which is a program that I created uh, about. 12 years ago in South Boston, in Maryland McCormick Housing Development, where I started doing some stuff on a with five kids on a tennis court because they were just sitting down in the projects doing nothing. And I said, if you want to do it again, come back next Sunday. And they did, but it was 12 of them waiting in the lobby. And my captain says, Frank, why are these kids in the lobby asking for you? I said, I don't know. So I go back and see who it is. <laughs> And they're looking at me, and I says, well, Captain, last, last week I took him to play tennis and bought a pizza. He said, how'd you get him there? I said, I put him in the cruiser. He <laughs> goes, well, they're not going to fit in the cruiser. Take the van. And this was Captain Flaherty, who I had wow. years ago. Okay. So they gave me the van keys. I took the kids to the park. We ran caution tape, used it as a net. And that was the birth of the Boston Police Tennis Program. And a lot of those kids are still in our Volley Against Violence program at Sportsman's Tennis in Richmond Center. At 950 Blue Lab, our executive director is Tony Wiley. COVID did affect us. We have probably had over 5,000 children over the last 13 years come to our facility on a Friday from 6 to 8 o'clock every Friday. And it's the safest place a kid can be on a Friday night. And usually we have somewhere between 5 and 25 police officers there interacting, playing tennis, talking to these kids, high fives hugs the whole nine yards it's, it's as politically incorrect as it could possibly be so the kid <laughs> needs a hug the kid gets a hug and what we do is we pick a topic and we sit down in pods and we allow these young people we have an adult uh, which is usually one of the parents the parents don't sit down in the lobby you have to come out and we sit on the floor so that we can all be on the same level of eye contact 
And these kids get to ask the police officers whatever question they want, anything. It's a safe environment. No one's being judged. Everyone's respectful. And they walk away with a whole new picture of who we are. And for us, we get a whole new picture of what these young people are because we think we know what what an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old wants from the police department. But how do you really know that the question to that, the answer to that question, unless you ask an eight, 10, or 12-year-old? So it puts us in a room where we can actually ask these questions also. When we do this, it allows us to do our jobs better. A 25-year-old adult may be concerned with a parking space. The kid that's seven years old might want somebody to meet him at the corner and walk him across the street or someone to talk to about bullying. I mean, and we have these discussions in this safe room. And usually there's a, anywhere between 80 and 120 young people on a Friday night. And it's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. Somebody can Google volley against violence. We've got pictures. They've got um, videos. And we've spread this, you know, to a few different countries and other, other states. And it works here. And it works because the police officers here care. I'm not saying they don't care in other places, but they just have gone to a whole nother realm. We have this community engagement group here, which has some of the best officers that I could think of on the department, and they know how to talk to people. They communicate and they do all the community engagement. They're phenomenal. It's That's a phenomenal wonderful. Group. That's great. Super, Superintendent Nora Baston, who runs that organization. So, you know, I think that our department. Um, it's very advanced. I think there's a lot that others could learn from it. Um, of course, I'm a little biased because I've been here for as long as I have, and I love it. I mean, I'm going to eventually walk away from it. It's a matter of time. We're getting closer and move on to some other things, but I'll always remain involved in whatever I can in terms of um, community policing and our tennis program. And I think we're going to be okay. I think there's hope for us because of the millennials and Generation Z, because they may not have the communication skills that that uh, my retro friend has, but what they do <laughs> do is they can use uh, a cell phone like nobody else can. And they can yep. get a thousand people <laughs> in one place in 15 minutes. <laughs> That's a so powerful skill, for there. sure. Frank? Thank you so much for the work you do with Volley Against Violence. That's that's awesome. And thank you for joining me today. This has been delightful. I, I really look forward to the time we could have a whiskey together outside and uh, continue the conversation. We are. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. If there's anything else I can do for you, please let me know. And I, um, for those of you listening, please continue to listen to this young man. He's going to make some changes in the world. <laughs> Thanks again, Frank. This was great. I will talk to you soon. Hope you have a great okay. day. Thank you, sir. Have a great day.